Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 9th. The first championship weekend of the 2023 season is now officially in the books. Considering it was week one on the calendar, I thought the level of play was extraordinarily high at each and every tour level event we saw unfold, whether it was the phenomenal level of just about every player on Team USA's roster at United Cup. The team lost two individual matches. Fritz, a three-set thriller. Pagula, her very first match of the event against a Petra Kvitova who has yet to lose a match here in 2023. I know it's only been three or four matches, but still, that should matter. And she went on to beat Iga. Every American was playing well throughout the course of that United Cup run. I want to put a final bow on that event, talk about Team USA's performance in a shutout victory over Team Italy, talk about why I think that event will continue to grow throughout the course of its time in the tennis ecosystem, of course. We also had some phenomenal individual events unfold, whether it was the high level of Coco Goff, who does not drop a set on the way to her third career WTA title. She was exceptional against Rebecca Massaro, a match that may have looked like a blowout on the scoreboard, but rain delay aside, it was a long physical match. And Coco Goff was one shot better than Masarova in just about every rally that they played. That matters as we head towards an Australian Open where, again, parity and uncertainty, particularly on the women's side, feels like it will be the prevailing theme of the event. That said, again, I think Coco Goff does offer some certainty, some clarity. I'll explain why the numbers say that, the eye tests say that. We'll recap her run in Auckland. Have to talk about Arena Sabalenka as well. I think her ceiling remains as high as just about any player right now out there on the WTA Tour, and she displayed that in what was, by Sabalenka standards, a dominant run to her first title since 2021. She also does not drop a set on her way to the crown in Adelaide, an impressive power display in her straight set win in the final over the rising 18-year-old Linda Naskova. It was just, again, what is this? Where does this ceiling exist in the greater ecosystem on the WTA Tour when Sabalenka plays this well? How replicable does this success feel moving forward? I want to explain why things look different as I watch Sabalenka play just about every match throughout the course of her run in Adelaide. But again, final thoughts on that. Obviously, I haven't mentioned maybe the biggest result to most mini-break listeners from Championship Weekend number one, Novak Djokovic, title I believe number 92 of his career as he earns a hard-fought three-set victory over Sebastian Corda that Stop me if you've heard this before. I think played top 10 tennis throughout the course of the week. I think he's played top 10 tennis throughout the course of the past four events and certainly three finals in his last four events are a testament to that fact. But I also want to talk about some individual things Sebastian Corda did that have me particularly encouraged. I talk about his backhand so frequently. I want to point to some examples from the course of the match. Sebi Corda was exceptional. Novak Djokovic was just one shot better. And what does that mean heading into the Australian Open? I'm actually going to lead the show, or I should say it'll be following United Cup because we got to celebrate the first team title in half a decade as it relates to American tennis. So United Cup, Adelaide, Auckland. Of course, if you're looking for thoughts on India, the other tour-level event that happened last week, you can hear my thoughts on Greek Spore over Bon Z on Saturday's edition of the Mini Break Podcast. With that said, we've got a loaded show for you to kick off the week, of course, starting tomorrow or perhaps later today. We'll see if we double up Mini Break-wise. I'm hoping to have David Kane on the show to offer some stronger week one overreactions. Of course, I'm looking forward to setting the scene to, for, excuse me, 
all of you listeners here in week number two as well as we have, I believe, four more tour-level events to kick off the week. I was fortunate enough to be on my final day broadcasting here in Los Angeles for our dear friends at Tennis Channel and their T2 streaming service. I had the chance to watch some matches on up close, and that said, I want to talk about them. I'll save that conversation as I set the scene tomorrow for all of you listeners, but you can look forward to this week because there are a ton of players still looking to get a few more matches under their belt before we get to the start of the Australian Open. And by the way, listeners, it's Australian Open time. We're one week away from the start of the year's first slam. We already have qualifying matches actually that have begun on the grounds. And certainly I'll talk some Australian Open qualifying throughout the course of the week here on this show. Again, we'll save that for later in the week. Maybe bring on our dear friend Damian Coos, who knows the qualifying rounds about as well as anyone. It feels like a David Gertler week as well. It's going to be a busy week as we bring all of them on to preview the year's first major in the ways we love to do here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, the reason we're able to do all this day in day out here on this show and I wanted to give you all a sneak peek we're going to have a ton of mini break episodes this week we're going to have a ton of great shot podcast episodes this week the college tennis season officially kicking as well so be on the lookout for weekly shows where we talk about all the men's women's action it's fun times here at Crack Rackets we were ready for the start of the season and boy has it arrived with a bang with that said before we recap week one here on this show I just got to give a shout out to our dear friends at Tennis Point who supply all the best equipment in the business at the lowest prices. You can find it all by going to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. You'll also get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, and best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-point, simple, not the spelling. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Final thoughts on Laver Cup. Boy, does it feel nice to be able, and I said Laver Cup, leave it in, but give me a rewind sound effect. Final thoughts on United Cup. Boy, was it fun to have a team event to kick off the 2023 season. You can just see the joy, the emotion, how much the passion is perhaps the best word each of these players have when competing for their country. And yes, it's an an inaugural event. There's not a ton of history as it relates to the United Cup. But of course, there used to be Hopman Cup, which was a similar format to the one we see at this United Cup. Of course, the teams are a little bit bigger. They all were, especially these teams that made the finals, the Team USA, Team Italy were together for a week plus, practicing together, hanging out together. They spend a lot of time on that bench watching all the matches unfold. That's both the perk and a benefit uh, and a negative, I suppose, of having the five rubbers. But look, the passion was fully on display. You could see it in the positivity and the relentless positivity and the outright intensity Jessica Pagula showed in what was at first a shaky, but ultimately a comprehensive 6-4-6-2 victory over a thriving Martina Trevisan. Perhaps no player exceeded expectations more than the number one singles player for Italy, who of course earned the definitive upset victory over Maria Sacchari to propel Italy past Greece. She fought her tail off in set number one. And, you know, again, Kept that first set close. 4-5. Jessica Pagula comes up with an outstanding defensive bump lob get. Trevisan has a chance at a swinging volley. She hit it a little tentatively. Ultimately, uh, Pagula able to go down the line, force an error out of Trevisan. Then Pagula just laced a bunch of backhands up the line throughout her time in Sydney. And these conditions, a little quicker, were perfect for her. I mean, she's just... Her ability to take every return early on the rise uh, that Martina Trevisan hit. Trevisan hit uh, one lower than 50% of her service points throughout the course of the match. She served eight total times in the match. She held, excuse me, nine total times in the match. She held just three times. Pagula broke 66% of the time, 67, excuse me, rounding up. And then Pagula defended her serve well, and Pagula was confident in attacking when Trevisan's forehand would land short, or she'd loop up a backhand that Pagula could run around and have her feet set and just, again, be unpredictable with. Pagula volleys extraordinarily well. Her case for being the MVP, yes, she suffered one of 
Team USA's two losses. They go 22-2 and overall in individual matches throughout the course of this United Cup. Pagula lost her very first match to, I will mention, an undefeated Petra Kvitova. Again, it's been like three or four matches throughout the course of 2023, but Kvitova has been awesome to start the year. The big win over Rabakana to kick things off. I think she's in Adelaide this week. But Pagula beat Iga. Two and two, and Pagula dominated Trevisan, and there was really no doubt in that second set. And the punctuation mark, the backhand up the line winner for Pagula to clinch the match. You see the excitement in her let's go, just the intensity in her eyes, how much this mattered to her. Set the tone for Team USA because, yes, they could have won different pathways without Pagula, but certainly if Trevisan got the win, now Italy's got momentum, now the crowd gets loud, now Berrettini has that extra fire, and boy, you know, Berrettini had no business keeping the match as close as he did against Taylor Fritz. And look, I skipped over the Tiafo match. Tiafo went 6-2. Musetti has to retire after the first point uh, in the second set. You could tell his shoulder was bothering him. He just didn't feel comfortable turning into the serve the way he needed to. And Tiafo's too solid if you don't have the weapon to disrupt his forehand to force him to be defensive on the return of serve and right off the bat in the point, then he's just too quick. He's too aggressive. He's too creative. He's just going to overwhelm you. That's what he did. And look, Francis Tiafo went 5-0 and in this event. Didn't have the highest level of competition. I think Musetti and maybe Dan Evans were his only top 100 wins, and Musetti was obviously a retirement, but 5-0 and is 5-0. and That's a lot of confidence for Tiafo to rack up in the perfect amount of match play. Uh, and not too intense, but certainly rigorous and the, the serious experience against Dan and Evans, Tiafo's right where he wants to be, entering the Australian Open, a place where obviously he has had success before. But look, the Fritz Berrettini match is ultimately the defining match. USA, a 4 0 win over Italy. I know Keyes wins 3 and 2 over Bronzetti, but let's be honest, you know, Madison Keyes was never going to lose to Lucia Bronzetti. And Keyes, by the way, also 5 0. She lost the one set to uh, not Harriet Dart, but. Oh my God, I can see her name, not Kayla Day. It's somewhere in between those two, obviously. Katie Swan, there it is, uh, for Team Great Britain. Leave all of that in. Come on, I found the name. That's impressive, isn't it, to all of you listeners? That was a nice little fun 30-second interlude. A lot of matches flowing through my head. I've called a lot of them for T2 the past week. Shout out to Mike Haston, the super producer, kind enough to bring me out. Shout out to Brett Connors, Jeff Chisiver, who were kind enough to tolerate me as my producers while I'm in the booth. We had a lot of fun. Uh, And shout out to all of you who I suppose took the time to watch as well. But Keys was dominant. The forehand, the backhand, they were exquisite. Keys went what? 11 and 2, 11 and 3, something funky like that with a title and an Australian Open semifinal berth last year. If she's overwhelming the, dare I say, easy competition as she also faced throughout the course of this event, you know, Madison Keys throws in the clunkers, right? Madison Keys, I think, lost at one point five of six matches last year. But if she's playing well going to, going into a big event, as we saw last season, we all know how dangerous the former U.S. Open finalist can be. She dominated. That was obviously going to be the third point after Tiafo Pagula won. You just felt like it was over. But again, now we get to it. Taylor Fritz was so impressive throughout the course of this Laver Cup run. I did it again. This time, no sound effect needed this United Cup run. Yes, he lost the three-cent match to Nori, but he was up a break in the third set. It was a 6-4 in the third loss. And what was so impressive is how he bounced back. 6-6 six and six over Hubi Hurkacz. No breaks of serve in that match. 6-6 six and six over Matteo Berrettini. No breaks of serve in this match. Fritz didn't Fritz a break point throughout the course of his 12 service games. He generated nine for himself. And again, credit to Berrettini, who came up with first serves and first forehands and maybe an additional volley put away as well. He won of the nine break points, seven of them. He won in three shots or less on his end, which just means he was efficient with the serve, the forehand, the volley, or the second forehand. And there was not much Fritz could do on six of them. Three of them Fritz would want back. And, you know, one of them I think he overcooked to return. The other one he had a good look at a pass, and I think he missed it. I'm blanking on what the third one was, but look, Fritz outserved Berrettini. 15 aces. He hit the slider out wide on the deuce exceptionally well. And I mentioned the nine break points to say Fritz won. He won 20 of the 33 points on Berrettini's second serve. That's a 61% win percentage on second serve returns created nine break points for himself against a guy who finished fourth on the ATP tour and hold percentage last season and is perennial roughly 90% top five guy, maybe the surest thing in all of 
uh, pro tennis, the plus one of Matteo Berrettini. And Fritz was better than him. Like anything Fritz got his hands on, whether it be from a return perspective, whether it be in the baseline rally, if he gets his hands on the ball, something magical happens. His contact point might be more efficient, might be more successful, might just straight up be better than any other player on the ATP Tour, um, including Djokovic. I mean, Rafa and Djokovic are in their own category, but like Sinner, Alcaraz, the Felix forehand, Fritz is right there with all of them. And I keep going back to something Bjorn Fertangelo, top 150 USA player in the world, told me once when I was speaking with him at the Cleveland Challenger. Shout out to Top Notch Management for their continue inviting me to their that event as MC. And Fertangelo was describing what makes Alexander Kovacevic special. And he was saying, Kovacevic's ability to hit the forehand with depth, but to also create angle with his cross-court forehand, to not compromise on the drive, not compromise on the pace, but still be able to get outside the ball and create angle with that forehand as well. No one does that better than Taylor Fritz on either the forehand or the backhand wing. And the problem for Matteo Berrettini was every time he sliced the backhand to Fritz, it didn't disrupt his rhythm. It actually just gave him more time to set his feet to make sure he was able to get outside the ball. Berrettini was at his best when he was trying to bang forehands down the center. I mean, really Berrettini's only ability to find success was when he got a really clean look at a first strike, whether it be on the second serve return, a clean look at a forehand, or obviously... Berrettini won 77% of his own first serves. And for what it's worth, yes, he faced nine break points, but he was never broken. That serve, plus one forehand, his ability to serve and volley behind it, it's what makes Berrettini an unequivocal tier two guy. I think he's the definition of it, where you know exactly what you're going to get, and you need to be elite to beat Matteo Berrettini. And Taylor Fritz was elite. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, he was in command of that entire match and his ability to extend a point physically to earn that mini break at the end of the match and then the big first serve, the big plus one forehand to close things out. Taylor was awesome throughout the course of the week and obviously you look for Taylor Fritz now, what he was able to do throughout the course of this United Cup. Fritz getting wins over Berrettini, over Hurkacz, over Zverev, uh, obviously the three-set match over Nori, but you look for Fritz now against top 20 opponents over the last year. He's now 11-8 and eight with these wins over Berrettini, Hurkacz, and I guess Zverev sort of counts uh, throughout the course of United Cup. You know, again, in the matches he's even lost, three sets to Fritz, uh, to Nori, six and six to Djokovic, seven, six in the third to Rude, and seven, five in the third to Nori, seven, six in the fifth to Nadal at Wimbledon, six, four in the fifth, round of 16 to Tsitsipas at Australia. Against the best, Fritz brings his best. He's no longer slow. Like, his ability to absorb the pace of the Berrettini inside-out forehand, get his feet there, make sure his backhand, again, when he has his hands on the ball, he's going to get outside of it. It was extraordinary. And I think throughout the course of the offseason, I was selling on Fritz because I wasn't confident in his athleticism. And I still don't think he's a great volleyer. But he's gotten a lot better at volleying. He's not, I don't want to say, if it's a binary at the pro level, I don't think he's quite a one. But I don't think he's quite a zero yet uh, anymore either. He knows where to go and what to do. He's just not always the best at executing it. But knowing where to go and what to do is really half the battle. And you'll get better at executing it with more repetitions. This is the first time I saw signs of life from Fritz as a volleyer. He's gotten so much better moving laterally. He's always had a decent first step, but I just think it's gotten better. And when he gets his hands on the ball, he strikes the ball forehand, backhand, wing, as well as anyone if you're asking me who's the MVP of the event, it's a really tough case because Tiafo and Keys both go five and zero. Fritz, Pagula each suffer one loss, but four and one outside of that. At the number one position, they also went undefeated in their doubles repetitions together. You know, I was gonna go with Keys because. She was the most valuable point in the sense you always knew Madison Keys was going to win, even when she went three sets against Katie Swan, who was in between apparently Harriet Dart and Kayla Day, which is just not true, but Katie Swan is who she is. Um, yes, that match went three sets, but like you knew Keys was going to win every time because her weapons were clicking. She's fit as a fiddle. Like, it just was a guaranteed point on the board. And honestly, Tiafa was there too. I just think you felt even more certain about keys and that way Fritz and Pagula could go one and one or oh and two and you still felt pretty confident but Jessica Pagula beat Ego two and two 
And for her to be that dominant in that sort of a moment, it's why Team USA was able to go on and sweep Poland because that just sent the message right away where it's just like, and Tiafo's going to cruise. Keys ultimately cruises against Lynette after the match has been clinched, but you just felt like both Fritz and uh, Tiafo and Keys were sure things. And that's why what Jessica Pagula did was that much more valuable because it just put the United States over the top. So with all things being equal, she played doubles as well. I'll go Pagula one, Keys two, because again, I think it has to be both women at the top. That's what made Team USA so special. Uh, I mean, Moose said he was injured in the last match, but he was a sure thing for Italy. I'll put Tiafo three on my ballot. But again, this was a really, really fun event. Maybe I put Cam Nor If it's an all-tournament team... Kvitova probably goes to the one single spot. Keys goes to the two. Tiafo's the two singles for the men. I think I go Nori as the one singles for the men. I like this. We're giving an all-tournament team. And by the way, feel free to tweet your all-tournament teams to me at AL Gruskin, at Cracked Rackets. Again, Nori one singles for the guys. Tiafo two singles. Keys two singles for the women. I think you go undefeated Petra at the one single spot for the women, although I don't know how you pick against Jessica Pagula. That's just to be spicy. And then they were undefeated, so I guess I go Fritz and Pagula at the mixed double spot. But how do you pick against Hercots and Iga, who probably deserve to be in that mixed double spot instead? But how do you not have Taylor Fritz on there? That just feels criminal. This is why all tournament team is hard. I'll go Kvitova one singles, and then I got to go with my gut and go... But you're not going to have Pagula on there either. No, I'm going for it's in Pagula because they have to be on there. Sorry, Hoopy and Iga. Get past the semifinals next year, and you're the unequivocal all-tournament team mixed doubles. Even if that's – if you're asking me who I'd actually want in a pinch, it's unequivocally Hoopy and Iga. But anyways, that's a discussion for another time. The last thoughts I would offer on United Cup. What an event. I mean, again, just to talk about it, you're as someone who, after we lost – club tennis stories this is the first club tennis story of 2023 took me nine days to get here shout out to me full nine days of discipline well that new year's resolution is broken um quick club tennis story we lose in the round of 16 my junior year and my junior year we had a really good team we had two girls molly fox carrie who who were both four stars or better on tennis recruiting and they won all of their matches much like team usa united cup that's why i've always known in a mixed event always you as the men you hope to break even and you really need your girls to be successful because as always in life you are riding on the backs of them um we had two really good girls Max and I were in a really good place. I think we lost one match our junior year. It happened to be round of 16 against Florida. We go one of six on deuce points. That's always delightful. Um, our Mick, our guy singles was a senior named Arthur Osga, my dear friend, who's also a four-star recruit out of Nutria, Chicago. Shout out to Chicago. We had three four-stars, and I think Rothman at his best was a four-star as well. I was not, but uh, like I like to say, I'm my generation's Tim Duncan. I'm the glue guy that you need. Um Anyways, it was a really good team. And after the year prior where we had lost in the round of 16, I just felt like, all right, we're definitely going to go a step further this year. And maybe this team can even pull off something special because we were really good at regionals too. We did not. We lose in the round of 16. And after that match, you know, we lose to Florida. We lose five of six deuce points. Arthur loses all six deuce points and loses the set 6-1. It's the team tennis format. All this is to say, I know that was a long tangent. I apologize. I wonder how many of you hit the skip 15 second button during that story. All that is to say, Arthur was a senior. I was really sad because I was never going to get to play with him. And I was like, how are we going to find someone to replace him? And I cried my eyes out after the match. That's just who I was. I Always enjoyed competing on a tennis court, even if it really didn't mean anything in the club tennis portion in college of my life. But I was devastated. And I always cried after matches like that. Nas- uh, national indoor, sorry. Uh, Badger Invitational, the only title we didn't win during my time in club tennis. See, I still think about these teams. We had match point, two of them. First one, we lose a really good point. Second one, I double fault away. We ultimately lose the match in a deciding break. Our tears in the car. I'm a senior in college. Tears in the car because I get, just get so frustrated. I hate losing more than I think I like winning. Um, anyways, I'm a crier after those matches because I care, because I really enjoy competing, because there's nothing quite like winning with a group of people and everyone working together to do it. And that's why Iga cried after her loss to Jessica Pagula, because that's exactly how she felt as someone who you feel like the team relies on when you're a leader like that. When you come up short, you don't, you're not mad that you disappointed yourself. You're mad that you lost for Hubi. You're mad that you lost for Magda. You're mad that you lost for Radwanska, all these people. And all that shows is that Iga cares. And 
isn't that what we want out of our athletes for them to be competing and caring about that competition? If we're going to spend the time supporting them, don't we want them to care and put forward their best effort? And that's exactly what we got from Iga. That's exactly what we got from everyone. That's what team events evoke out of these players who otherwise sometimes can get lost in the slog, the monotony of the year-by-year, week-by-week, day-by-day grind of professional tennis when you're in a different country and you wake up in a different hotel room and you don't remember where you are on week four of your trip. Um, You know, when you're competing with a team, it centers you, it keeps you focused, it keeps you inspired. Every team from Tim Henman, who we heard a lot of both in the commentary booth, but even more fun when he was on the sideline for Team Great Britain, you know, Team Italy, Team Poland, Team USA, the camaraderie, the crowd being allowed to be partisan, Tsitsipas engaging the crowd with Team Greece, and they propel them over the finish line against Berrettini to keep that match interesting, spread out across multiple cities across the continent. This was really fun. I think you should put a United Cup in every portion of the calendar. You should do this once per year or per surface. So starts out in Australia, do one around the French Open, do one around Wimbledon, do one around the U.S. Open. Make it four times a year because I think you get different groups of players depending on the rankings in any portion of the calendar. Yes, it would require cutting things out. But what what do you care more about? Honest to God, Winston-Salem, not to pick on them because it's a phenomenal event, phenomenal people who run it, or something like this where you get to see so many of the best competing different cities across the country. Maybe Winston-Salem becomes one of the host sites of the United Cup. Maybe you know Atlanta, instead of that event, becomes one of the host sites for the Atlanta Cup. Maybe you do it all on that weekend. So D.C., Atlanta, Winston-Salem, you all get United Cup events and instead of getting tour-level events during that stretch of time. And you throw one in San Diego as well because they have a WTA event right around then. I think I just came up with a million-dollar idea. Shout out to any listener. I almost <laughs> There are some listeners who I know if I say tweet this out because I think it's a million-dollar idea. You guys will actually tweet it out. Shout out to you. You know I love you. Listeners who you know who I'm talking about in this moment. You know who you are. Don't do that. I need a new listener to tweet this out if you think this is a good idea. In lieu of some of the 250s. But those cities are guaranteed United Cup events. I'm going to tweet this out afterwards, actually, myself. You're, you know what, listeners? You belay that order. I will tweet this myself. Would you be in favor of having United Cup events and putting it in those cities instead? I think it's an interesting thought exercise. I'm going to have to bring that up with David Kane. But I've always been pro-team event. That's why we spend so much time covering college tennis here. End of rant is this United Cup, in my th- uh, opinion, was an unequivocal success. Let's move on to some of the other championship matches we saw throughout the course of the weekend. Let's start with the Adelaide men, because of course it featured Novak Djokovic winning another title, I believe number 92 of his career. Look, as expected, Novak Djokovic was exceptional once again. He has been exceptional, really, since returning to the court in 2022. You look for Djokovic now over his last 52 weeks, 87% win percentage. You compare that to his career average, which the fact that he's won over 80% of his matches for his career is ridiculous. That the sample size is over a thousand matches. He sustained that. It's ridiculous. The fact that he's won over 80% of his matches at all four slams. These are things you doubt will ever be matched perhaps in men's tennis history again. And yet, you know, again, against all of that background, he's winning 87% of his matches over the last 52 weeks. His career win percentage is 83.5. Laughable, laughable. He's three and a half percent better than his career average. You look at the hold percentage for Novak during this 44 and seven run, he's holding serve 88.5% of the time that would rank fifth on the ATP tour if prorated for the entire year. And, you know, that number is, uh, 2.5% above his career average, uh, which again, at this age, you're 2.5% above your career average. You're 35 years old. It's really unsure if you're still in your prime or not. Now, the break percentage has dipped. It's back up to 27.8%, which is a top five number on the ATP tour, but it's 4.2% below his career average. That said, he's holding serve more frequently. And if you watch Novak Djokovic play, I don't want to say he tanks return games, but he certainly gets more aggressive when he's taken a commanded lead, commanding lead. And case in point, you go watch his 
3-5 return game against Quinton Halise early in this event in Adelaide. He needed to get the break. He got the break. You look at his uh, ability to hold serve against Seppi Korda down 5-6, 30-40, match point in the second set. What does Novak do? Big first serve. Big first backhand, follows it in, hits an assertive overhead, a shot he has notoriously struggled with throughout the course of his uh, career to fight off that match point. And then, you know, you look for how he earns the match point. It's the exact opposite side of the spectrum. Great aggression to help him fight off the match point. And then the typical physicality, the typical flexibility, that typical death by a thousand paper cut challenge he presents to every opponent that he faces. Stellar defense uh, forces uh, bump lob. Quarter has to take an overhead off the bounce. Yes, there was some crowd noise. Yes, it's under the lights, but Quarter misses that overhead and it sets up a match point. And again, for Novak, who was comfortable serving and volleying and won 86% of his first serve points, over two-thirds of his second serve points, only faced two break points throughout the course of the match, was broken once in this three-set battle, Djokovic was just locked in. And particularly after playing aggressive, hitting the overhead to fight off the match point at the end of the second set, he wins the second set tie break 7-3. He was just in command from there. And credit to Sebi Korda, who pushed Novak Djokovic and forced Djokovic to have to find his highest level as he did at the end of set number two and throughout set number three. But man, as good as Djokovic was, and again, you look for Djokovic 47 and seven over his last 52 weeks. This is title number six for him in eight finals during this run. The only thing missing obviously now is a second Grand Slam title during this run because he won Wimbledon uh, last year, but still one behind Rafa Nadal in the overall count, which you know he knows at the top of his head. He's the unequivocal favorite, uh, and it was a high-level event you know, to play the firepower of Shapovalov, the physicality of Medvedev, the nothing-to-lose, free-spirit combination of all of these things, just how exceptional Korda was. Djokovic also fought himself, was yelling at his bench after losing that first set breaker, 10-8, and Djokovic refound his rhythm. He refound his form. This is obviously exactly what Djokovic was looking for to kick off his 2023 season, and above it all, it's title number 92, and he's closing in ever so slightly on Jimmy Connors, who it feels like his record, I think it's Connors, will never be surpassed. It's either Connors or Lendl. See, now I'm feeling insecure. Was it Connors? Was it Lendl? I'll have this answer for all of you in five seconds. It is Connors at 109, Federer 103, Lendl 94. He and Rafa now tied with 92 titles. Look, I want to be brief because I've done a lot of Sebi Korda ranting throughout the course of this year. And by the way, Djokovic with this title, still number five in the ATP live rankings. But I want to talk about Sebi Korda, who does not move into the top 10, but displayed a top 10 level and has done so throughout the course of the past two months. You look for Korda, who's up to number 31 in the live rankings after reaching the final one off his career high of number 30. He should be seated at the Australian Open, which will be a massive relief to just about every seed. Although if he draws Rafa, let's say, as his round of 32 opponent, mm, dare I say upset alert for Rafa. But you look for Korda over the course of his last four events. He's made finals in Hyon. Antwerp, Adelaide, first round three set loss to Demonauer in Paris, 12 and four during that stretch, holding serve 87.9% of the time. It's a top 10 number. It's 4.4% better than the career average, uh, than the typical average of a top 50 player. You look at the break percentage, 21.9% overall, but obviously that's offset by the hold percentage and he's still putting a ton of returns in play even if he's not breaking service frequently and look he hasn't had to straight set wins over murray wins the first eight points against rba and sinner only played one set against nishioka the three set battle against djokovic where he was broken twice broke djokovic once it was two tiebreakers that ultimately he splits him with novak in this match Korda's played an exceptionally high level, and you look at who he's beaten. He's beaten RBA twice. He's beaten Nishioka twice. He's beaten Team. He's beaten Hatchinov, who just made a U.S. Open semifinal. He's beaten Sinner. He's beaten Murray twice. It's a strong strength of schedule in this 16-match run, and this is the sort of month-long five-event run you see out of a player before they make that 
major leap before they have that signature result. And again, statistically, Sebi Korda is still breaking serve 26% of the time. He's been a top 10 returner over the course. He's actually 12th, I should say. Over the course of the last 52 weeks, over the course of the past month, he's been a top five server. And we saw all the pieces come together in the match against Djokovic, some of the backhands he hit. And, you know, again, it's a long match. You can see some of these examples, I believe, in the highlights offered on the Tennis TV YouTube video. But Korda hits a backhand, second game of the match, 15-all, cross-court, cross-court, down the line. He lines up his shoulders beautifully. It's just perfect technique. Hits a backhand through Novak Djokovic, you know, 4-all, 15-40, same thing. Back the, down, back, uh, da, cross-court backhand, leave all that in. Cross-court backhand, backhand down the line to clinch the point. Just exceptional stuff out of Korda who can play Djokovic backhand to backhand. Borderline even. You know, and then 6-all, 5-4 to set up the two set points that ultimately he blows. But the backhand down the line he sets up there. 6-5, 30-all to set up the match point in the second set. Another backhand down the line winner. It's just an elite shot in Seppi Korda's arsenal. A backhand that, again, played Djokovic almost even on that wing. Now, of course, the backhand he missed, 5-4, 40-30. Huge kick serve out wide. Has a sitter backhand. He makes 94 percent of the time those were one of the six percent where he misses it but the good outweighed the bad he's hitting through the forehand more confidently he won 78 percent of his first serve points over 50 percent of his second serve points now only made 58.9 percent of his first serves three percent below a top 50 players average a low-hanging fruit for him to continue to improve on but it was only broken twice against Novak Djokovic who got a little tentative at the end of the first set, got a little tentative until he started playing bigger and fights off the match point with the serve and volley in the biggest moments early in the stage because he thought Corda was going to hand it to him, and Corda did not. And Corda was exceptional. Again, this was a really fun match between, in my opinion, two players who were playing at a top 10 level, and Djokovic's level is still better than everyone else's, but Sebi Corda is on the rise. Sebi Corda will be there sooner rather than later. This was a really fun match. Credit to Novak. Title number 92 starts his year out, as expected. The unequivocal favorite entering the Australian Open. With that said, that was one of two Adelaide finals. And look, if Djokovic is the unequivocal favorite on the men's side, I ask, is there an unequivocal favorite on the women's side? I know Iga lost 2-2 two and two to Jessica Pagula. She's probably earned the benefit of the doubt as the favorite entering the 2023 Australian Open. But man, this version of Arena Sabalenka is absolutely good enough to capture the 2023 Australian Open title. And discussing that ceiling is something we have done with frequency here at Cracked Rackets over the years. Certainly, Arena Sabalenka was someone I named in December as a tier one talent, someone who could disrupt the seemingly unstoppable run that Iga Swiatek may go on over the course of the next couple of seasons. But you look for Sabalenka, who made three finals last year, didn't come home with a title. It's her first title since April 2021 when she won Madrid. She didn't drop a set in comprehensive victories. She was down 5-1 in the first against Ludmilla Samsonova. Ultimately wins that 6-6. Six and six. She uh, gets broken three times in that match. But only double faulted six times, which was a 4% improvement from her average last year. You know, wins over 60% of her first and second serves. Then a 3-5 and five win over Von Drusova, where she was up 6-3-4-1. That was the only time alternate long she fell asleep at the wheel. The most encouraging things, 3-2 and two in the semis, 3 break points faced, 3 break points fought off, 3-6 and six in the finals over Neskova. Three break points faced, three break points fought off. Now, the double faults crept up against both Naskova and Begu. You know, they were in the six, seven, eight range, closer to the 10% double fault rate she was at last year. But in those two matches, she won 81% of her first serve points against Begu. She won 93.5% of her first serve points against Naskova. And that's the reminder of what the ceiling is for Arena Sabalenka, a player who finished outside the top 25 in hold percentage last season. And guess what? That's going to happen when you double fault 407 times, more than 100 more 
than the next closest player. When you're double faulting over 10% of the time, you're not going to be a top 25 server. You can't give away a free point one out of every 10. But if she can have that number or even lessen it to, again, that 6%, 7% range she was floating in this season and continue to make the first serve at the rate she did with the success rate that she has. I mean, there were times when she was just bunting down on the ball where as big as Naskova hit, as loopy as Vandrusova hit, as much drive as Samsonova hit, it didn't matter. Sabalenka always brings the biggest weapons to the fight. Her ability to take the backhand down the line on the plus one ad side is elite. Her ability to hit the inside out forehand as the plus one deuce ball is elite. She's a very good volleyer. She continues to get better as a mover. You know, the break percentage continues to tick towards a top 25 number. Last year, she was 36.5. That ranked 18th amongst top 50 players. You know, again, I think she continues to get better as a mover. I think every individual aspect except the second serve continues to get better. And when she can put that piece together, and it was just solid throughout the course of this week. Well, with how far the other games of her uh, parts of her game has progressed, solid means not dropping a set on the way to the Adelaide title. You look now for Sabalenka. She holds at number five in the rankings with this result, but it's a nice chunk of points for her to start the year. You look for Sabalenka since August 10th, 2020, in this pandemic era of the WTA Tour. She's 99 and 45 now. 69% win percentage and look against opponents ranked outside the top 50. She's 46 and 10. But the more impressive numbers, 53 and 35. She's winning 60% of her matches against top 50 opponents, 19 and 18, 51% win percentage, but over 500 against the top 20. And then 9 and 12 when she's faced the top 10. And last year lost four different matches to Iga Sviantek before beating her in the Fort Worth semifinals. In, a, in an era plagued by inconsistency, in an era plagued by parody, Arena Sabalenka has been about the second surest thing on the WTA Tour. And that's hilarious to say out loud, given how much instability exists within every individual Sabalenka match in a bubble. But again, this Sabalenka, go watch with your eyes. Her pace overwhelmed every opponent. As impressive as Naskova was, and just a quick final thought on her, because we talked about her a lot last week, she wasn't able to overwhelm Sabalenka with her pace, but she was able to keep pace for most of the match, certainly in the second set when neither of them are able to break serve. Her weapons were able to help her keep pace against someone who plays elite power tennis, and Naskova's 18 years old. You feel like she's going to be a better mover. You feel like she wasn't quite ready at the start of the match for the onslaught that was the Sabalenka first serve and plus one tennis and just how aggressive Sabalenka is at all moments. Naskova adjusted, started playing bigger earlier in points and was able to go unbroken. Again, in set number two, was able to win 74% of her first serve points, fight off five of six break point chances. She just isn't quite there as a mover yet to uh, to be prepared. She doesn't quite have the strength to be prepared for that overwhelming elite power tennis that the best of the best, Sablanka, Rabakina, to some extent, Samsonova right now can hit, but she's on the precipice of it. And her first serve, again, she can keep pace, certainly. if not, She can't exceed them yet, but she can already keep pace. And you look at the 18-year-old now, again, first tour-level final. Naskova now up into the top 60. She's sitting at 56 in the live rankings. This is a really good run for her and Adelaide. Wins over, come out, world number two, Jabur, to beat Azarenka, to beat Claire Liu, to beat Daria Kasakina to come through qualifying with wins over Kalinskaya and Potapova as well. Just an exceptional run. She's the real deal. No one will want to face her in the first week of the Australian Open. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the coco cg1 at newbalance.com let's talk about auckland 
let's quickly summarize where things stand with Coco Goff. She's right where she needs to be entering this year 18 season and age 18 season, excuse me. You look for Goff with her title, third of her career. She's sitting at seven in the live rankings. I mentioned the stats earlier, but you look for Coco Goff now 27 and two since the start of last year against opponents ranked outside the top 50. You look, it's 38 and nine, a 81% win percentage. Anytime you're over 80, you're elite. It's winning 81% of her matches, 38 and 9, against opponents ranked outside the top 20. And I mean, again, she didn't drop a set on her way to the title in Auckland this week. One and one in the final against Masarova. Now, it was much more physical than that scoreline would indicate. The first four games took about 20 minutes. Obviously, there was a long rain delay. I thought there were a lot of deuce points that ultimately went the way of Coco Goff. Here's the thing. Goff, who saved all 10 break points that she faced in this match against Masarova, she was just one shot better than Masarova. Her forehand, heavier. Her backhand, more line drive, more power. Her volleys, more consistent, more depth, better placed. Her foot speed, one step quicker. She was just a little bit better than everything at Rebecca Masarova. She was a lot better at everything than Kavinich, than Julin, than Maria. I thought the only match, again, that was really tight was the top 50 level I saw from Sonia Kennan, who actually had the weapons and the decisiveness to consistently find ways to pressure Coco Goff. But Goff's ability to force you to hit an extra ball, uh, her ability to, again, neutralize things with that loopy, highly elevated forehand up the line to get things on her terms... Coco Goff did a lot of things extraordinarily well. And again, backhand to backhand, she was just better at that exchange, which is not something Rebecca Masarova is going to see a lot in her career. Goff had more action on the forehand. Masarova didn't quite have the serve to disrupt the Goff forehand return. Goff did have the serve to get into the body, get into the forehand, just force Masarova to be at a deficit. But this was really fun physical tennis when Masarova was able to execute the X's and O's of the serve and the return, which is really where Goff also separated herself. Her first serve, she went over 70% of her first serve points again, was an absolute weapon, just hits that ball big. It's the perfect table setter. She hits her spots well. She's comfortable moving forward behind it. There's a lot to like about Coco Goff, who again, hadn't won a title either since 2021, back in Parma, back in May, third title of her career. Now, again, you're still looking for that significant title run, that banner hanger, you know, at a 1,000 level event. Obviously, we saw her make the Roland Garros final last year. That's the next step. But she's now won three titles, and she's 3-1 and one in her four titles with the one loss coming in the French Open final. It's her four title appearances, excuse me. And 27-2 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. 38-9 against opponents ranked outside the top 20. She's beating who she's supposed to beat. And that's the first step you take in becoming an elite player is just if someone doesn't have a weapon to overwhelm you, if someone can't do something to disrupt your rhythm, beat them. Beat them every time. And that's what Coco Goff does. And again, that's the first sign of elite talent. So credit to Coco Goff. A very impressive win on her. A very impressive week as she does not drop a set. Obviously, the other big question coming out of the final, is this the last we'll see of Rebecca Masarova? Or is she going to stick around for a little bit? You look for Masarova with her run to the final. She's up to number 94, new career high for the 2016 Junior French Open champion in the live rankings. You look for Masarova now in her career in tour-level play. Masarova, two quarterfinals. It's her first since 2016. Uh, the first final for her at the tour level in her career. She's 24-17 and 17 overall, but a lot of that is... Uh, a lot of that is qualifying matches she's played over the course of the past year. Look, this is a big confidence boost. And now with Lyon coming up and a bunch of 250s across the map, at a minimum, she'll get into qualifying. She might get into a lot of main draws. You know, she might go play Acapulco in Mexico. She might go play Guadalajara in Mexico. Those 250 events, where there will be slower courts where she can thrive because she's got the athleticism. Like her ability to move to the backhand, again, I mentioned the physicality of the one-in-one final. It's not often a one-in-one final takes an hour, 15 minutes. Like that's a 45-minute match. But no, Masarova extends points. She creates well with her backhand. It was just a terrible matchup because two similar players, they protect the forehand. They surprise you with their backhand line. They're both extraordinarily quick and are going to extend rallies. 
Goff just also can finish at the net, and she's got an elite first serve. She's just a little better than Masterova at everything. That said, good wins for Masterova over Sloan, over Irani, over Bonaventure, Mukova, Blinkova. This was the first set she had lost of the tournament. It's a massive moment for Bonaventure into the top 100. A little longer than the former junior French Open would have expected it to take, but ultimately, again, she advances uh, to the final in Auckland and into the WTA top 100. Quick, quick, quick week ahead, because if I dive too deep into it, I will dive all the way deep into it. Look, got really fun events throughout the course of the globe. You look at some of the top 10 players we haven't seen a ton of yet so far this season, Casper Rude competing as the top seed in Auckland. He's joined by second seed and former New Zealand native Cam Norrie, who's your two seed there. Of course, in Adelaide, you've got Andre Rublev, Pablo Carino Busta, Karen Hatchinov in action, players like Schwartzman, RBA, Kesmenovic, and you know, I know Davidovich Fokina plays JJ Wolf, Jack Draper. Got a good first round win on the men's side. Of course, you look on the women's side, another absolutely loaded draw uh, in Adelaide. You've got top seed Caroline Garcia, Daria Kasatkina, Kudermatova, Bedosa, all in action. Benchic, a good first round win. Collins, a good first round win. Hadad Maya, a good first round win. Kavitova, a good first round win. Kanteve, Ostapenko. How many top? 20 players are playing in Adelaide. Every player ranked 13 through 20. Uh, so that's what, eight right there. You've got nine, 10, 11, 12 top 20 players competing in Adelaide. 13 top 21, if you want to include Barbara Krachikova. 14, 15, 16, 17 top 30 players. 18 of the top 31 competing in Adelaide this week. That's nuts on the women's side. And oh, by the way, you've got players like Bushkova, who, by the way, Bozhkova, as I learned on the WTA website today, Elisa Mertens, Alise Cornet, a ton of fun young talent as well competing over in Hobart. So four more tour-level events. It's going to be a good week. 18 of the top 31. 18 of the top 31 women competing in Adelaide. Come on, folks. Can't get up for that after a month and a half off from the professional tennis world. I don't know what to tell you. That said, I will tell you this. We will be back throughout the course of next week, this week now. See, this is California brain. Uh, This week, we'll be rocking and rolling here on the Mini Break Podcast, as I alluded to at the start. We know four tour-level events. We'll keep you updated here. We'll be previewing all things Australian Open over on the Great Shot podcast feed. We're getting ready to record Breakpoint, our new show, breaking down the Netflix show, Centering on all things ATP, WTA Tour, myself, Gil Gross, very excited for that podcast. We've got busy times, busy content, tons of content here for all of you Cracked Rackets fans as we continue to kick off this 2023 season. Of course, shout out to the man behind the scenes who makes it all happen, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of any job he does day in, day out. A massive shout out to the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point as well. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic Daniel Westoff, our super producer, for our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.